I wonder if we could have uh, anybody who's here who's a veteran, men or women who've served, if you would stand for a moment. We just want to thank you directly. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, we thank you for the freedoms that we enjoy in this land. We thank you for the men and women who have given much to protect those freedoms and to honor the rest of us. Thank you for the years away. Thank you for the sacrifices that were given. Thank you for the pains that are still born in some cases, or memories that won't go away. And we ask that you will continue to bring great peace and joy as a result of their service, and that you will continue to give us years of freedom and of peace in this land. And therefore, we pray for all of those who are serving today as well. We pray for the leaders of our country in every generation and every administration that they would act wisely, that would, they would be surrounded by people who can whisper your words at the right time in the right way. And we do this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Hey, it's good to be back. I, uh, I want to take a minute to thank our overseers uh, and you as a church for uh, giving me the last six weeks off. It's been a long time since I took a sabbatical. It was 13 years previous to this. I don't think I've ever been as rested as I feel right now in my adult life, which is nice. And that was the goal. I also want to thank uh, Todd Shimshak and our staff and everybody who filled in the last six weeks. And I've listened to some of the messages. I'm still kept catching up with all of them. And it was great to be able to cheer them on from, uh, from other places over the past few weeks. We are blessed to have people who are continuing to develop uh, their gifts of presenting God's Word and feeding our congregation. And um, I have to say, I was uh, particularly thrilled by Scott Chapman, because uh, Scott took a big step forward. And I heard Scott speak at one of our uh, guy wire meeting several months ago, and the thought hit me that day, he has a gift that the whole congregation needs to hear. And uh, it's a different challenge for a non-pastoral staff member to take that step up, but I was thrilled by what I heard uh, in all of that. This morning we're going to turn to Genesis 38. It's an unusual passage that I'd like to read for you. I don't think I have ever heard anybody preach a sermon on uh, the life of Tamar in Genesis 38, but we're going to talk about one of the most head-scratching encounters in the entire Bible this morning, and I think at the end you'll be blessed because we did. This is Genesis 38, starting with verse 12. It's a longer section that takes up the whole chapter, but I think in reading these 14, 15 verses you'll get a picture and enough background of what's going on so that even if you've never read this before, you'll be able to track uh, with this message today. Starting with verse 12. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira the Adulamite went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, 
She took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who is beside the road at Enaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then he said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her my son, uh, give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. Let's pray. God, sometimes your word seems really bizarre because your people are bizarre. And sometimes the people in the Bible's accounts have great brokenness. And I ask that you would allow us to find truth and hope and healing in the midst of the brokenness of life and in the midst of the brokenness even of the people of this, this particular passage. I ask that you would bring grace into our lives and in bringing grace into our lives, that you bring grace into this world in new and profound ways, one person, one friend, one family member at a time. Put on each of our hearts one person's name who needs Jesus and give us a burning desire to see to it that they hear about your love and that they see your transforming power in us, one day at a time. In Jesus' name, amen. Question for you. Have any of you followed the recent story about the conversion of Kanye West? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? Some of you do, some of you probably don't. Who's Kanye? Oh, Kanye West. Well, in September, longtime rap artist Kanye, yeah, Kanye West, oh, I get stuck on that, announced that he had become a born-again Christian. While changes in his life have been building for months, perhaps even a year or so, by mid-October, Kanye announced that he is done making secular music and that he is only making music for the Lord Jesus from here on out. 
One late night talk show a few weeks ago asked him if he considers himself a Christian artist now, and he used that phrase in particular, and Kanye responded by saying, I'm a Christian everything. In other words, I don't just make Christian music. It's a part of my life. It is, it's a part of everything that I'm doing. This is a new day. Some of you may know that Kanye West's wife is Kim Kardashian, and when she was asked about this conversion experience that he'd gone through, she responded to a number of the questions, saying that the changes in Kanye are real, that they've also translated into their home in some very specific ways. Uh, For instance, they have young children, and he's taken all of the TVs out of their kids' rooms, and he's becoming much more strict in the standards that he sets as a father and what he allows them to see and take in from the media and from entertainment, and it's changing their household. She was asked what she thinks of that, and she said, I don't agree with all of his decisions, but I'm glad that he's stepping forward and taking charge, and I support him in all of it. Then this month, in early November, his new Christian album, his first, called Jesus is King, dropped, and it opened in the number one spot on Billboard's national rating, and every single song on the album is in the top songs on the charts right now. The responses we are hearing are all over the map. Some cultural cynics and careful Christians both have warned that we've seen media stars turn to Jesus before and then quickly turn into a flash-in-the-pan failures soon after. And so some are saying, just wait, this one will be a big explosion too. Forbes magazine's music critic warned that Jesus is King's uh, number one opening is deceiving, that it won't last that his lyrics are full of prosperity gospel promises, and that Kanye will not be able to afford another album like this one because it'll ruin his career. Some reviewers label Jesus as King as a gospel album, while others have called it a foray into Christian hip-hop. In other words, they don't know where it fits. They don't know what to do with it. National Review magazine called Kanye, quote, a cultural wrecking ball and noted that Along with his profession to be following Jesus, he is also speaking out about a number of the negative influences in our secular culture to the point where younger people are listening to him and in some ways they're worried that he's going to follow. He's confessed to his past addictions to wealth, fame, sex, and porn and called for his fans to throw off all social media fascination and all the things that he's been addicted to and instead to turn to prayer and to turn to Jesus. Does that sound like a flash in the pan? And people are listening. The concerts that he started a few months ago have turned into choir-led Christian worship events and even revival meetings, so much so that in one of those meetings just a weekend ago, a thousand people attending one of his worship events raised their hands during an altar call indicating that they want to receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord and follow Him in the same way that Kanye now is. The question is, what do we do with a phenomenon like this? Are we ready for it when God chooses one of the most unlikely people in a way that we didn't see coming and speaks His word through unusual people? What we have been seeing for the last eight weeks in this series about beyond brokenness is that God uses all kinds of unusual people. He did it in the past, 
And right now, in perfect timing for a sermon introduction, he's doing it again today. What do we do with that? I'd like to give you a couple of suggestions before we move on from Kanye West. I think we have a duty as Christians to pray for Kanye West. Pray that his life does not become some flash in the pan, but that uh, there is uh, a deepening. We should watch and look for signs of growth, consistency, and spiritual depth. Another thought is that we should pray that he will also be surrounded by people who can strengthen him whenever he falls. I was thinking of Scott Chapman's point from a few weeks ago. Jesus' ability to pick us up is always greater than our ability to fall. I love that line. I wish I wrote it. (laughs) I love that Scott Chapman wrote it and gave it and delivered it. It's true. It fits. Last thought is learn from him, but never ever base your faith on anyone else other than Jesus. And there comes the danger with celebrity faith. Now, I wanted to start with this Kanye West conversion story because in today's message, we're going to look at another controversial person who is listed in the Bible's journey toward Jesus. Her name is Tamar. The only event recorded about Tamar in the entire Bible is a moral head-scratcher, yet she shows up in Matthew's line of Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. This is the way Matthew begins the gospel. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Notice, there are 12 brothers. Judas is the only one listed. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And the genealogy goes on for several more generations And finally, it ends this way, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Tamar's great contribution seems to be a sexual encounter with her own father-in-law that should never have happened. So what can we possibly learn from Tamar? That's our challenge for this morning. I'd like to present to you two major lessons that we learn from Judah and Tamar, and and they're far beyond just the moralistic lessons of saying, don't do something. Here's the big idea for this morning. God's desire for redemption trumps human treachery. God's eternal desire for redemption of people always trumps human treachery. Here's the first thing that we can learn. God can overcome God is capable of overcoming. God regularly overcomes years of rebellion. We start off in chapter, in verse 1 of Genesis 38, which tells us a story about Judah. The opening verses read this way, At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite woman named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son, who is named Ur. That is the backdrop for this morning's story. Before we can understand Tamar, we need to understand something about the character of Judah. Judah, one of the twelve sons of Jacob. Judah, one of the older brothers of Joseph. Joseph, who became the second highest ruler in all of Egypt. Joseph of the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. 
The context is important. The story of Judah appears in the midst of a major section of Genesis that focuses primarily on the life of Joseph, the 11th son of Jacob. Joseph was the favorite son and the hero of the final chapters of Genesis. But chapter 38 deliberately meanders from the story of Joseph. And it diverts our attention to the fourth son of Jacob so that we can understand the early years of Joseph's character development, or maybe I should say lack of character development, because we're going to find he was a rather peculiar person. Joseph's early patterns were marked by acts of rebellion against God's plan. In Genesis 37, we find that Judah was the one who came up with the cruel plan to sell his younger brother Joseph to Midianite traders where he eventually gets sold as a slave in Egypt. The older brother Reuben wanted to stash him away and then meant to come back and rescue him and bring him back to their father. But while Reuben was away, Judah found the traders and sold Joseph. Judah's early pattern also includes this scene in the beginning of chapter 38 that we just read about when Judah attaches himself to a Canaanite friend and to the Canaanite people and their practices. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, his forefathers, had never intermarried with the Canaanites because of their adultery. They knew that one day Abraham's uh, descendants would be given all the land of Canaan and that God was judging them because they had worshipped idols instead of him as God. Judah then moved in with this Canaanite friend, Hira of Adullam, and Judah mar married a Canaanite woman. Uh, she's presented here as the daughter of Shua. In Hebrew, her name probably was Bathshua. That daughter means Bat. So Bathshua is most likely her name. In Genesis 38, verses 6 through 10, we find that Judah and his sons mistreat and abandon uh, Judah's daughter-in-law, his only daughter-in-law, whose name was Tamar. Judah and Bethshua have three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. And Judah chooses Tamar, another Canaanite woman, meaning another idol worshiper, as the wife for his oldest son, Er. You get the sense that Judah is moving farther away from God, farther away from his family, farther away from all the expectations God had for him. And then we find that Er, the oldest son, is so evil that something very unusual, even in the Bible, happens that the Lord automatically puts him to death. We're not told how, we're only told why, that he was so evil in the sight of God. This is a very unusual statement. And here we encounter for the first time something known as the Leveret Law. If any of you have studied the book of Ruth, you may know a little bit about the Leveret Law. The word levir in Hebrew means brother. And in this case, uh, when a man dies, the widow's welfare becomes the responsibility of the next brother. So the expectation was that the next youngest brother, even if he was married, would take this widow as a wife, would have a child with her, preferably a son, so that the, father's, the dead father's name could be carried on. And that son would become the heir because in the pattern of the Mideastern peoples of that time, women could not own property. So this was a way, actually, not of punishing the widow, but of providing for the widow. And so... Tamar is given to the second son, whose name is Onan, and it says that Onan was also particularly evil, and essentially he, he abused her as his sex slave, but would not follow through so that there was actually a child to be born. You can fill in the blanks of what I'm not saying. And God puts him to death, too. So, the leveret law being applied would mean that the third son should next step up, but the third son is younger, 
And Judah decides that this younger son is not ready for marriage, and so he commands Tamar to go back to her father's home to put on widow's clothing and to wear widow's clothing in continual mourning, not free to remarry somebody else until Shelah is old enough. And years go by. And years go by, and we discover that Judah actually had no intention of providing for Tamar, and he forgets her. Without knowing her identity, Judah ends up treating his own daughter-in-law one day as a prostitute. When he finds that she is pregnant, Judah then connives to execute her in the most brutal fashion. He sentences her before there's any hearing, before he even sees her, and says that she should be burned to death. This quick profile reveals to us something of the character of Judah. Judah is quite a few years older than Joseph. Some of these events probably happened before Joseph was even born. Some of them happened in those years when Joseph was in Egypt and apart from his brothers before they went down there to buy food. By the time of Joseph's reconciliation with his brothers, we begin to see a change of heart in this rather rebellious and, if I dare say, wicked man named Judah. Judah has returned to his father and his brothers. In Genesis 44, we discover when it was necessary to bring Benjamin with the older brothers down to Egypt in the midst of a famine in order to buy grain from Joseph, not even knowing that Joseph was now the second highest ruler in all of Egypt. Judah is the one who steps forward, and he assumes responsibility for Benjamin. This is significant in Joseph's eyes because uh, Jacob had four wives and all of these 12 sons came from a mishmash of these wives, but only two came from the woman that Jacob originally wanted to marry and always loved, Joseph and the 12th son, Benjamin. And when Joseph sees that Judah is now pledging his own life for Benjamin's life, he realized something has changed. This is the same Judah who hated Joseph so much because he was the favorite that he sold him off into slavery, not knowing what would happen and not caring, and then lying about it for the next 13 years. Actually, it's longer than that. It's like 20 years uh, until they see Joseph again, lying about it by telling the old man that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. That's where they took Joseph's famous robe and smeared blood on it as if to show proof that Joseph had died. And now he sees Judah stepping forward to protect Benjamin. And Judah offers to serve as a slave in Egypt in Benjamin's place. This was Judah's wake-up call. This was a sign that we see of a repentant heart. But perhaps an earlier sign is the one that comes through this encounter with Tamar And it may be the reason that chapter 38 becomes this diversion from the story of Joseph. Because he utters this one line that comes at the end of the story. When Tamar brings out the seal and the cord with which he would have probably wrapped the seal around his body like a belt and his staff. And she says, do you recognize these? The person who got me in this situation is the owner of these three things. And it's there that Judah says, she has been more righteous than I. And we see a change in his heart when when, when, uh, Judah sees his own evil exposed. 
Years later, old Jacob, now known as Israel, blesses his 12 sons, and he blesses Judah in a very particular way. We read about it in Genesis chapter 49. He says, you are a lion's cub, Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah. Years later, Jesus would carry as one of his titles the Lion of Judah and would fulfill that promise that the ultimate ruler of God's people would come from the tribe of Judah, and that includes Jesus. It's why that genealogy takes us all the way from Abraham to Jesus and includes Judah and includes Tamar. Perhaps there are some here this morning who identify with Judah. You've lived life your own way. At turn after turn, there have been a number of times when you ignored or rejected the expectations of God or where you were aware that in some very profound way you had this desire just to choose your own path and rebel against God's plans. Maybe somewhere in your past you've used, mistreated, or abandoned people along the way. And years have gone by since you showed any tenderness of heart toward God. And then recently, or perhaps even today, your heart has been or is being moved toward repentance. You need to know something. God can overcome years of rebellion when we speak truth and when we come clean and when we turn toward Him. That's an amazing story in the way God uses people. God's desire for redemption trumps human treachery. It even trumps the treachery in Judah's own heart. And here's the amazing thing. It's through Judah's line out of all the 12 sons of Israel that Jesus would come. Here's the second lesson, perhaps even more important. God can overcome acts of desperation. A little while later, verse 25, we read these verses. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. This is Tamar speaking. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I since I wouldn't give her my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. This background of Judah helps us understand what's going on with Tamar more clearly. Tamar had been mistreated by Judah and by Judah's household, and it had gone on for years. Judah's first son had been just plain evil to the point where God ends his life. The second son had sexually used her for his own pleasure, and the Lord took his life too. And then Judah had consigned her to a lifetime of walking as a widow. He hadn't offered anything to take care of her. He'd banished her back to her own father's home instead of providing for her. And he had ordered her to wear widow's clothing instead of freeing her to marry somebody else. He locked her into this cultural tradition. And then he had abandoned her with no intention of ever giving her his youngest son. Even though he didn't speak the words to her, she knew the truth. And so the narrative of Genesis tells us that truth. In light of this, we can reevaluate Tamar's act of desperation. It is interesting, Tamar never propositioned Judah as she sat by the road to Timnah. She did take off her widow's clothing and presumably put on other clothing that was a bit more presentable. I wonder if that meant she had to wear all black during those years. And it says that she put on a veil so that Judah would not recognize her. 
We're not told that a veil was particularly a, a tool of the trade. Perhaps this was simply just so that she wouldn't be known. But Judah assumed she was a prostitute, and he began to initiate the conversation and to bargain for a price in order to sleep with her. By choosing that location, Tamar knew something about the character of Judah. She must have known his pattern. What pattern? Probably his pattern for prostitutes. He was accompanied by his friend Hiram the Adullamite. And each time we see Judah with this man, Judah steps farther away from alignment with God. <coughs> Since only men could own land, Tamar needed an heir from Judah's line in order to protect herself. She had been exposed to evil, sexually used and abused, and now she had been abandoned and consigned to mourning by her father-in-law. But wisely, in the midst of this encounter, she secures Judah's seal, the cord that holds the seal, and his staff as security. She had no intention of taking payment for sex, the seal, the cord, and the staff were simply tools to protect her from Judah's treachery and hypocrisy. Judah's treachery is fully revealed when Tamar's pregnancy becomes known. He had judged her and sentenced her to be burned alive. There was no mercy in him. But the plot line turns <clears throat> when Tamar exposes Judah's treachery with his seal and his staff. The seal likely had a big J on it for the beginning of his name, something that he would press in wax as, in order to uh, imprint something like a signature on an official document. The cord was likely a belt or a strap by which he slung that seal over his shoulder or wrapped it around his waist. And the staff would have been individualized, perhaps carved by Judah's own hand to mark his staff as different from the staff of any other wandering shepherd or farmer in that area. It was his property. And then when she reveals his treachery, Judah was the one who applied the term righteous to Tamar's act of desperation. Not only did Tamar bear a son in the line of Judah, she bore twins. Perez was the firstborn, even though the hand of Zerah came out initially. And it's through the line of Perez that Jesus comes. So Judah, Tamar, and Perez all end up in the line and the genealogy of Jesus. Once again, we see that with God, redemption trumps treachery. Judah's evil plan was thwarted. Tamar was vindicated. And she was even praised for her righteous act, as unseemly and as unusual as it seems. You see, God's desire for redemption trumps human treachery in the midst of this story. Perhaps there are some people here who identify with or sympathize with Tamar far more than Judah. You've been used or abused by someone else somewhere in the past. Or you have been sexually mistreated in ways that have harmed your life and you're tempted to think that nobody cares, nobody notices. Maybe in some way, shape, or form, you have taken part in some kind of act of desperation that causes you to think today that you are not worthy of God's goodness or worthy of God's grace. I can't tell you how many 
people, uh, the number of people I've met over the years in doing pastoral work who are convinced that everybody else is worthy of grace but them. And you need to know that God's desire for redemption trumps human treachery, trumps human evil. When you come to the Lord with an open and repentant heart, He will treat you with grace. It doesn't matter what you have done. There is no act so foul that God's grace isn't greater still. Like Tamar, He will include you in His plans for good. I don't know what that will look like. You don't either. But that's the amazing thing. We are never so far away from God that He can't redeem every aspect of our lives. You will will find a place here at North River Church among those who experience that same grace, the grace that reaches beyond brokenness. That's what we've been talking about all this fall. You see, God's desire for redemption trumps human treachery. And that's why this unusual head-scratching story is included right there in the midst of a wonderful story about Joseph so that we will think hard about what's going on and, and why they're there and about the words that are proclaimed at the end. Sam Albury works for Ravi Zacharias Ministries, and he recently told a story of a British soccer star named Bobby Moore. In 1966, England took the soccer world, or as they call it, the football world, by storm by winning the World Cup. It fell on the captain, Bobby Moore, to have the honor of walking up the steps of Wembley Stadium in order to receive the trophy from the Queen of England herself. Afterward, Moore was interviewed about that experience and asked how he felt as he was walking up the stadium steps to meet the queen. And he admitted that he was absolutely terrified on his way up toward the queen as he noticed that she was wearing these pristine white gloves and his hands were caked from the mud of the field from the number of times that he'd pushed down, been pushed down into the muddy field of Wembley Stadium. And as he walked up the The stairs in order to greet her, he was trying to frantically wipe off all of the mud from his hands out of fear that he would take her hand and she would be stained by the dirt and the filth that he was carrying with him. Most of us had some experience of feeling in some way that we are unclean and that we are unworthy. And so the words of the leper that we meet in Mark chapter 1 take on a whole new light for us. He says to Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. And there Jesus was deeply moved by the man's words and by his heart. Albury then adds this thought. There is always more that's right in Jesus than there is that's wrong with us. I love that. There is always more that's right in Jesus than there is what's wrong in us. Whatever shame or blame your journey through life has brought on you, you need to know something today, that there's always more that's right in Jesus than there is that may be wrong with you and me today. I wonder if in the silence of this room over the next couple of minutes, if there's anybody here that needs to do business with Jesus. He offers grace and mercy to you. This is the gospel presented in veil form all the way back in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis. But just like the genealogy leads us to Jesus, this story leads us to Jesus too and leads us to redemption. And so I just want to create a moment 
We're in the midst of the prayer that I'm going to start. If you haven't yet asked Jesus to fill your life with grace, acknowledge your sins to Him, and ask Him to take them away and make you as white as snow on the inside, this would be a great time to do that. Lord Jesus, we pray to you now, everybody in this room, and we thank you together for stories of redemption, stories that lead to the gospel and that lead to grace that are embedded all the way through the Scriptures, like this one. So thank you for the sometimes confusing story of Tamar, because with Tamar we find early signs of how you treat people who have been covered by the abuse or the brokenness or the sins of this world. Hear the person who may be saying right now, Lord, I never thought I'd be saying these words to you. Make me clean on the inside. I know that you are willing and that you are able to take my life as it is, to redeem me, to make me clean on the inside, and then to use me as an instrument of grace. Hear my cry. Thank you for noticing. Thank you for reminding me today that whatever I've gone through has been seen and not forgotten. And that your grace and redemption can still trump the treachery of this world. Make us all whole on the inside. Lord, we pray for Kanye West. We thank you that he's taking a bold stand in your name and pray that you would deepen his faith, that you would surround him with men and women who will speak truth, and that you will continue to give him courage to speak into our age. We don't know what your plan is. We don't know if he'll be one of those who becomes a flash in the pan, or if he will become a mighty leader of your next wave of revival. But we're watching with hopeful hearts and praying that you will again Show us how your redemption has such a strange and amazing and wonderful path. And let that path include us too. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Isn't God good? Even in the midst of the strangest passages in the Bible, we find his redemptive heart revealed. Hey, this is the time when we... Uh, have an opportunity to give back to support what God is doing here through North River. You can do that either as the ushers come and as they pass these offering bags, or you can do that online. Um, we can show you how to do that if you want to talk to somebody, but thank you for supporting our church. We've got one final song that we're going to sing, and we're going to go out of here with uh, praise in our hearts, and I think this is very appropriate, thinking of the stand that Kanye West is taking. We're going to be singing about the stand that God wants us to take as well.